I submitted, you know, I said, fine, okay, I'll do it. I'll run the feedlot and I end up doing so for the better part of a hundred days. Trust me, it is a long time. If your heart is for animal liberation to work in that feedlot, part of the job was artificially inseminating the dairy cows, right? So up to 60 cows per day. And I had no experience with this. I was given one day's training and said, there you go. Now you got to do it. It broke me. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another fascinating episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Today, we're going to delve into what redefines the boundaries of transformation and compassion. In this episode, we're joined by J.H. Burnett. He's a former meat farmer turned vegan activist whose extraordinary story of transition from animal agriculture to ardent vegan advocacy challenges the norms and opens our heart to the endless possibilities of change. J.H.'s narrative is not just a story about dietary choices, but it's a profound exploration of ethics, compassion, and the human capacity for change. From his upbringing on a farm in South Africa to his eye-opening experiences that led him to embrace veganism, J.H.'s tale is one of revelation, struggle, and ultimately redemption. Our conversation is a deep dive into the realities of animal agriculture, the emotional toll of witnessing terrible animal suffering, and the powerful awakening that leads to this compassionate lifestyle. As we navigate through JH's experiences, we're reminded of the profound impact our choices have on the world around us and the interconnectedness of all living beings. This episode is riveting, heart-opening, and an experience that speaks to the soul. So join me as we explore the remarkable journey of J.H. Burnett and discover the profound impact of embracing compassion and the change it can have on our lives. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please go and leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Jay. It's great to sit down with you and hear a bit of your story. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie, and for all the listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. Really, it is. I am positive that at least 99% of the people working in these industries don't want to be there. Being vegan already at the time, uh, I really felt it. It was it was immensely tough for me. I remember going to the cows every morning, like half an hour before the job officially started and just go in there. And they are such gentle creatures. So before we get started and learn about all the things that you're doing in recent times, as always, as we like to do on this podcast, let's go back to the beginning and talk about what brought us together, which is veganism and the plant-based lifestyle. Tell us about how you discovered this lifestyle and take us on a journey of what I believe is a bit of a remarkable story. So my vegan story, my vegan testimony, so to speak, is is a quite, um, it's complex in a way because I... I'm a former meat farmer, if I can put it so, who then ended up working in the dairy industry of all things, who then became a vegan and now work as a full-time vegan activist and vegan life coach. So it was, from my perspective at least, it's, fairly, it's a remarkable journey and it, uh, it, was, it was grueling at times. The atrocities that I witnessed in those industries definitely led me to becoming a vegan and you know led me to the point where i wanted to give back so i guess that is the basics of it yeah in a nutshell 
So tell us about how you became a farmer. How did you, where did that start? Was that a generational thing? Like, how did you get involved in that type of industry? I grew up on a family farm, and uh, but we didn't farm with animals on the specific farm. We farmed with olives, so fairly vegan friendly. But my family to this day owns another farm in what we call the Great Karoo of South Africa, outside a small rural town in the middle of nowhere called Kalfinia. And what makes this farm fairly unique is that it is the oldest family-owned farm in all of South Africa. It's belonged to my family for all of 253 years, which in the context wow. of South Africa is a very long time, right? So we grew up going to that farm every other holiday. And uh, I remember the grown-ups always making a fuss about this farm. So from, you know, the, the times when I first received my memory almost, if I can put it that way, I remember being almost brainwashed in believing that this farm in the Great Crew is like the best farm in all of South Africa. Which it really isn't. It's just in, you know, any other f- farm, but we at least thought it was. And I remember thinking that farming at one day, if ever I was going to you know, get the honor of doing so, would be like the honor of a lifetime, right? So I grew up with this vision of wanting to farm this very old family owned farm of ours. But it was never on the cards for me. And I knew that growing up because I was sort of born into the wrong side of the family. But, you know, life can be surprising in 2018 so i farmed the other family farm own farm the one that i grew up on the the olive farm and when they were sold off uh, at the beginning of 2018 i got a very surprising phone call and it sounds very formal but it was very formal one of the shareholders of this older family owned farm the one where they farmed with sheep contacted me and said you know we spoke as shareholders we want to know if you and your wife would be willing to give up everything and to move out here, which is really like in the middle of nowhere, and to come take over this family on farm from your grandfather. Because my grandfather, at the time, he was still farming it, and he was already 80 years old. So the idea was, the, the vision that was pitched to me is, come out here, move here, and sort of learn from your grandfather for the next two years. And in two years' time, you guys are the future. You are the ninth generation in your family then, you know, to farm it. And then you can take over the farm and sort of lead the way into the future. So having always had the dream of wanting to farm it, my wife and I, we absolutely leaped at the opportunity. We left everything behind, or at least I did. And my wife stayed behind because she still had a small business in our hometown and she needed a couple of months to close that down. But me and my two bull terrier dogs, you know, they are the ones with the big noses, we left basically immediately, moved out to Kalfinia, moved out to the farm. My wife moved there four months later. And so there we were, me and my two bull terriers, part of the sentimental journey. And we were so desperate just to be a part of that story. So it was, it was, a, it was a sentimental choice, us moving there. But from the get-go... It wasn't a good fit. So I I moved to the farm without any vegan foundation. At the time, I was 29 years old. I'd never even met another vegan at the time. Can you believe it? So I had no vegan foundation. I'd never seen an animal liberation documentary. I'd never read an article, nothing. So I went there knowing nothing about veganism, moving to the farm, 
And as you can only imagine, I started seeing things from the get-go that didn't sit right in my heart. You weren't vegan yet? You were, no, you were still no, eating? Not animals. at all. Right. I was very much a meat eater. Um, I had no problem with the idea of farming with sheep. It sort of sat right with me. I, I knew this is what I was going to be doing. I'm going to go learn the industry for the next two years. I'm going to lead the farm into the future. That was the mindset that I went into you know, farming this farm. How did you go from this meat-loving South African farmer, which is the absolute opposite of what you would expect a vegan to be, you know, eating meat and uh, the consumption of animals in South Africa. You know, I grew up in Zimbabwe, so, you know, I can relate to the lifestyle and the culture is so alien to so many people in our countries. The idea of, of, of human beings living on plants alone as a child to me was an alien concept. I didn't know any vegetarians. I didn't know any vegans. To this day, I ask myself, you know, why did I never as a child think of this stuff? Because I've heard of many young kids uh, at very early age, five, six, seven, shunning meat, going, I don't want to eat animals. And I often ask myself, you know, I was a very gentle, sensitive child. I would cry at the drop of a hat. I always wondered what was missing from my life. Why, why didn't I have an awareness of what I was being given? So I'm just curious as to that journey from you. And obviously, you know, growing up in that culture, you were, as you say, I think you used the word brainwash, maybe you are kind of conditioned is maybe even a better word to believe that eating animals, as Dr. Melanie Joy often says, is normal, natural, and necessary. We must do it. That if we don't do it, we will die. So when when I meet people like you who go from being like at the source of animal agriculture to now being like a full time animal rights activist and campaigner, it's an incredible leap. <laughs> so, you know, I'd love you to sort of try and fill in that gap. How the heck did you go from over here, which is animal agriculture, to vegan? Because they are like polar opposites of each other, aren't they? And it seems such a huge chasm, really. No, I totally understand. As I said, I moved to the farm with my two dogs. And yeah, as of the get-go, as of the very first morning on the job, right, I started making these vegan connections. And I call them, and I'll call them love connections, where you sort of, where you bridge that gap, where you see the reality for what it is. And it all started off uh, on the very first morning, the guys working on a farm took me to one of the pens where they worked with the sheep, right? And uh, what they were doing on this specific morning, they were docking the sheep, the baby lambs, meaning the cutting off of their tails, right? I found this very traumatic, right? Because obviously these lambs were calling out to their mothers and it was quite brutal just to see these big guys grab these tiny lambs and then take old rustic garden scissors of all things and just cut off their tails as if it was nothing. And I sort of went in with the mentality of being the quiet observer, right? So I just, I knew I was there to learn. So I was sort of standing in the corner on this first morning, just observing. And I couldn't believe what I was witnessing, right? So I asked a couple of questions. I was almost put in my place, made to believe that, you know, this is just the way it's always been. How dare you almost question it? So, uh, yeah, but still, it didn't sit right with me. There was a lot of blood, a lot of crying. I was traumatized. So, so you experienced the suffering of these animals and without prompting you, obviously, as a compassionate, intuitive person, thought, this can't be right. Why are we doing this? Yeah, this can't be right. Surely there's got to be a better way, man. But so later that afternoon, I was walking with this thing, this this uneasiness within me the whole day. And uh, later that afternoon, as the sun was setting, I decided just to drive out 
to the herd of sheep where they were sleeping in uh, in the field just to go check up on these baby lambs because it bothered me so much. So when I arrived there, there were these two tiny, frail little lambs completely covered in blood on their hind sides, right, from the docking of the morning so that those wounds were still bleeding profusely. And those were so weak that they could no longer walk. So what had happened is, cruel as nature can sometimes be, the herd had given up on these tiny, you know, these two little lambs, and they were wandering off for the night, including their own mothers. And here were these two frail little lambs calling out to the herd, almost like, please come back, please. And they could no longer walk. They were struggling, would get up, and they would fall again. And as I said, completely covered in blood. And uh, it just completely it broke, it broke my heart, man. So I took them home with me that evening, right? Which is a complete no-no in my culture. It was it's frowned upon. It's like, what are you doing, man? It's almost silly. It's like, what's wrong with you, right? But it was so. I just, I just knew that I need to help these lambs. So I took them home with me, and I took them into our kitchen, and I made them a nice little bed on the floor, and I put down some blankets and some pillows, and I just sat with them you know, for many hours, and I treated their wounds to the best of my ability, and I fed them some nice formula milk, and I just sat with them that evening, and I could just, I just made that connection. I could just see these beings, they are sentient, right? They, they can feel love and pain and hope and fear, and they were looking at me with those big brown eyes, almost like J.H. If they could talk, they would have been like J.H., Please, man, you got to save us. And uh, man, I did my best and I just sat there loving them. And next door, literally next door in the bedroom were our two bull terriers, right? And I sat there with these lambs and uh, I made that connection thinking of my two dogs who I love and love so much. One of them has unfortunately passed, uh, you know, since that day. And I was thinking of these two bull terriers and thinking that, you know, it feels to me like I, I love these dogs so much I can I'll be willing to lay my life down for them, right? But how can I love these dogs so much and eat the lambs? So there I made a very important love or vegan connection. And unfortunately, as life would have it, the two lambs passed away in the night and it completely broke my heart, right? And I phoned my wife and I was telling her the story and she was crying and I was crying and and uh, we basically started questioning our consumption of meat as of that day. So what had happened is a couple of days later, me and my two bulldogs were sitting on the back porch early in the morning as the sun rose and I was having a nice cup of coffee and uh, just sort of contemplating these thoughts because already by then, within a couple of days, I'd seen some brutal things, right, in the meat industry and it was bothering me a lot and I was sitting there just sort of trying to prepare my mind for the day's work and as sitting there, one of the guys who worked on the farm walked past my yard and we greeted one another. He walked on and he w entered a couple of hundred meters on, he entered what we called the sick pen. It's basically just a smallish cage where some of the tiny lambs ended up when their mothers either passed away or sometimes the, the mother, she, she will have like twins and she won't have enough milk for both of them. And then one, the smaller one will end up in the sick pen. So I was watching this guy from the corner of my eye. He went into the sheep, you know, into the sick pen. The next moment I saw him dragging out a small little lamb by his or her hind legs. I, I be honest with you, I can't remember if it was a it was a male or a female, but he was dragging 
him out by his hind legs, right? And uh, I sort of sat right thinking, what on earth, what is he doing? But I thought maybe this lamb had passed away in the evening, right? And uh, then I saw, no, this lamb is still kicking. You know, this sort of flame was like, let me go, man, what are you doing? And uh, the next moment, I see this guy picking up this large, flat rock, of all things. And he starts beating down on this lamb. And I just leap to my feet. And the dogs are barking and the coffees, you know, fall into the ground. And I'm running and I'm screaming at the top of my voice. And as life would have it, you know, like a poorly made horror movie, I'm struggling with the garden gate to get it open. And finally I'm out and I'm running at this guy and begging him to stop. And whether he couldn't hear me or he just refused to do so, I still don't know to this day. But he just kept on beating, you know, down at this lamb. And um, finally I reached him and I'm I pushed him to the ground and I was weeping. I fell next to this lamb, to this bleeding lamb, as he was taking his final breath. And um, I just sat there with this bleeding lamb, with his skull all crushed, in my arms, crying. And I just remember saying, why? 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 Just for at least five or seven minutes, it's as if my brain just couldn't stop asking the question. I wasn't in control of me asking the question why in, in my native language of Afrikaans. The question is, who come? Why? Who come? Why did you do this? And I was just shouting it almost at the heavens, like, why? Why? It made no sense to me. And I was so heartbroken. And that was the day that led us to, to quit eating meat. So my wife was still in another town. She hadn't even moved to the farm yet. But both her and I just gave up eating meat completely, just tore us apart. So there we were in this new culture, just facing the one atrocity of, of the other. Now, I do write about that extensively in, in my book, you know, the, the atrocities that we witnessed. And I've heard many, many people have asked me, but Jay, why did you guys then stay? Obviously, this wasn't a good fit. There you were. We didn't call, it's important to note that at the time when we quit eating meat, we didn't call ourselves vegans. We just simply said that we don't eat meat nor dairy. But we didn't feel worthy of the titles of being called vegans, right? Because we were still being paid from the meat industry, right? So we were no longer eating meat. I wasn't killing any of the animals myself, but I was witnessing the atrocities and that sort of helped to fund our, of at least my salary. So we didn't call ourselves vegans, but why then, why then didn't I leave? Whether it was right or wrong thing, you know, it's easy to question that in hindsight. But at the time, as I said earlier, we had a two-year goal. The idea that was pitched to me is you're going to take over this farm, JH, in two years' time. So I always kept that in mind. Say, listen, if you can hang in there for two years, then you can take over the farm, as the deal was. And now, you know, from our new vegan mindset, we wanted to turn a farm into a sanctuary. So we got this idea, we're going to... Because you can imagine now the farm at that stage was farmed as a meat farm, a sheep farm for 250 years. You can imagine you know, the, the bloodshed that happened in 250 years. So we thought, imagine being able to turn that around 
and to now turn it into a big self-sustaining sanctuary. So I started building on, on business models because I come from a strong business background. So I put a lot of effort into that, just sort of trying to get everything in place. So when the day comes, when I take over this farm, we're going to become a self-sustaining sanctuary. And as life would have it, and we didn't, we didn't look for this opportunity, but what happened was, so we were facing the blood and the gore of it all. And then one late one afternoon, one of the neighbors in, in, in those districts, right? Uh, maybe you know this, this is in the Great Crew. Your closest neighbors are like 30 kilometers down a gravel road. So one of these guys, he was moving out of the district, right? And he phoned me up late this afternoon. He said, Hey, JH, you know, as you know, I still wanted to swing by your place just to come and say bye. But unfortunately, our plans didn't work out. I need to leave early next morning. I'm not going to have an opportunity to say bye, but just thank you for everything. And basically, you know, him and I shared a couple of words. And as I was about to put down the phone, I almost got like a ping from the universe, right? So as I was about to put down the phone, I said, wait, 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 wait. And he was like, yo, what's up? And I said, Listen, man, the last time I was over there at your place, I remember you had these three little Indian runner ducks. Now, Robbie, I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen an Indian runner duck or your, if your listeners have, but if you, if you haven't, you know, you've got to Google it. It's the cutest thing imaginable. They are almost funny looking, walking completely upright. And uh, so long story short, and I asked him, of course, you're now moving away, but what's going to happen to these three Indian runner ducks? And this guy said, funny, you should ask. The guys who used to work for me, I gave them. They just came to my place now, and I gave them to them as sort of like a farewell present. And they are now on their way to this one guy's house where they are now going to slaughter them, of all things, for supper. And I was like, not on my watch. I remember saying, not on my watch. And I jumped into our vehicle and drove over there. As I said, 30 k's gravel road. And I drove over there and I got there. And this guy, this neighbor of ours, took us to where these guys lived, who now had the Indian runner dogs. And I went there begging them to give me the runner dogs. And they said, no, it was a gift, you know. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll buy them from you. So... I ended up buying these three Indian runner ducks from them, took them home, built them a nice little camp, a little dam, and that was the start of our very unofficial little sanctuary, right? My wife and I said, we're not going to go looking for animals. The right animals will find us. And uh, we blinked twice, and we had 55 animals living in our unofficial little sanctuary at the back of our house. So we couldn't do much concerning the sheep that was being farmed on the farm itself because they, in inverted commas, didn't belong to us. They belonged to, I was just helping to manage the farm. But the animals coming into the sanctuary, you know, we could love them and we could just, you know, I remember sitting with them many evenings, especially as the sun went down. My wife and I would go out there with the guitar and just love on them and they would come eat from our hands and just make music and just, uh, just some of the best memories. So that helped us to keep saying we had a vision, we had this little unofficial sanctuary and we wanted to build that out into a big sanctuary. So that helped us to to remain sane despite the brutality that we especially I witness almost on a daily basis. Thank you for sharing that. It's beautiful, you know, hearing hearing your stories and hearing about your connection with animals and that, you know, it's such a beautiful thing when people, you know, when 
our hearts open to the love of animals. And I think we grow up, and, and I think the, the kind of key kind of word here is speciesism. We grow up in a speciesist culture, which says that, you know, it's okay to love dogs, wear cows and eat pigs. Um, and we're told not to question it. This is the way it is. Don't question, do as you're told. You know, and that's that. Millions of people around the world are shunning the consumption of animals for many reasons, but mostly for ethical reasons. We don't need to eat animals. We don't need to cause suffering. So if we don't need to do it, why do we do it? Why do we continue to cause such horrific suffering? And we're able to, people are able to do it because they distance themselves from the victim and see them as an object. It was the same that in, in, in genocide, you know, the only way people were able to kill uh, other human beings is to, is to dehumanize them, is to turn them into objects, turn them into an enemy other than, and that's what we do with with animals so that though animals obviously are brutalized and are terrible victims of a very barbaric system but human beings are also victims of the animal agriculture industry they're not often talked about the impact of animal agriculture has on on human beings and and our mental health especially people who work on farms people work in slaughterhouses people who have to witness the violent acts on sentient animals who scream like babies especially lambs i mean when i watched dominion this documentary if you haven't seen it is harrowing but it is a powerful film the film that you're going to be showing tonight is intense it is terrifying but luckily every single person here signed up to come and see the scariest the most disturbing film on the face of the planet and that's what we plan to provide it won't be easy you may want to shout you may want to cry you may want to leave the film will challenge you both physically and mentally um, if at any point you feel too distressed to carry on feel free to leave at your own convenience um, though I would employ you to stay. The film is, it showcases what happens every single day around the world, but rarely sees the light of day. Um, it's won 15 separate awards at various film festivals from Hollywood to Los Angeles. And the most, the most terrifying part about this film is that it's a documentary. You'll see no actors, you'll see no props. Every interaction that you see in the film is shot through hidden cameras and everything you see is true. The film uncovers what the media, big business, national governments, and the most prominent industries on the planet don't want you to see. Finding out that truth is uncomfortable. If you decide to take the red pill, stick around, accept the free film, the free food, and the prizes that you've all signed up for, and leave this with a genuine change perspective, then take the red pill, stay. If you decide to take the blue pill, you decide you want to leave this place, turn down the free food, the free film, and the prizes that you've all signed up for, and live the rest of your life wondering what if, then take the blue pill and leave. What you're being offered is a genuine chance to learn, to grow, and to make a difference to the world around you. But in order to fix a problem, we first have to know what the problem is. And the problem that we're addressing is the very worst of human society. The most disturbing and painful part of that was the baby lambs, because, you know, baby lambs are very gentle, very innocent. And when they scream, it's like a human child screaming. And it really tore through me. I don't know how anyone is able to have a job like that and kill those types of creatures on a daily basis without killing a part of themselves. And that's what I believe happens. But Tell me about what seeing all of that did to your mental health and what the people around you as well, witnessing that you call them atrocities. How did that affect you as a person, uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? I was, I was suffering immensely and, and I only got it worse. 
as time went on, especially, and I'm sure we'll get to that when I transitioned from the sheep and from the meat industry into the dairy industry, but it gradually became worse and worse. I, I remember crying more and more and very often, you know, there was a struggle just to get out of bed. And I, I said, I remember telling my wife, there's a darkness living inside of me. It was, it was, I just called it the inner darkness and became darker and darker. It became ever more difficult to, to see the, the light, light, light side of life. I, I remember times, you know, we were invited to go visit friends and I, and I just, it would be like on a Saturday afternoon. I would just lie there weeping in bed and just begging my wife, please just phone them, just just postpone. You don't have to tell them the truth, but, but I can't get out of this bed. I am suffering so much. I am in so much pain. And the pain just got worse and worse. But I always, as I said, I, I had this vision. I, I thought, you know, the, the day we can turn this farm into sanctuary, all will start aligning for, for us. But but unfortunately, you know, it just, as I said, just became worse and worse. And then what happened was what completely pushed it over the edge is the day when I found out COVID had already hit. It was 2020. It was at the height of COVID. You know, all the borders were closed and there was just chaos all over the world. I found out that some of the shareholders in this family-owned farm now wants to back out of the deal that they have with us. So they said, you know, the droughts in South Africa has become too severe for us to continue. We need to sell off the farm. So some of the shareholders said, listen, we need to sell the farm. And the others said, no, we need to honor our commitment to JHL. We need to continue with the farm. So then they sat around the table and said, okay, fine, let the courts decide. We're going to take one another to court. Well, we weren't involved, but I'm talking about these shareholders, and they made a court set. Until the court case is settled, we need everybody off of the farm. We're going to rent it out to the neighbors. Unfortunately, then JHML, this L being my wife, they will also have to move away. They can always move back to the farm if need be, but until it's settled in court, you know, we need to rent it out and everybody needs to leave the farm. So there we were at the height of COVID, needing to move away from the farm. So there went the sanctuary dream, at least for the time being. And that completely pushed my mental health, my mental stability over the edge because that was what was keeping me alive, right? Um, so immense suffering because there we were, Alan and myself, we cared for those animals, also financially for the animals in the sanctuary. So we had given everything we had to them and now we had to we had to give them away. So it was it was brutal on our hearts, but also on our finances. So we were at the height of COVID, no prospects of work on the horizon we had to pay you know other sanctuaries and, and friends and to take in our animals from our little sanctuary we paid for most of those animals like for a year in advance regarding feed and so forth so we we were in dire straits financially and our hearts were torn and now we had to move off of the farm and it felt to me like the brutality witnessed over the past two and a half to three years was all in vain and my mental health just started suffering severely. And what happened at that time, this is how I transitioned into the dairy industry of all things. What happened was I was sitting on Facebook one day, almost just, just looking for an opportunity. I'm so, I'm in dire straits. I just need, please, if there's anything out there bigger than me, you know, in the universe, can, can something just come through for us? You know, our hearts is in the right place. We just, we just need a break here. Yeah. So what happened was 
I somehow happened to connect with a very old friend of mine who at the time he lived in the US. And um, him and I, we just started a conversation. He had no idea what I was dealing with. And now I'm leaving the farm. Too many years have passed, so we had lost connection. So we were basically just saying, hi, how are you? Where do you live? Those sort of basic questions. And um, out of the blue, this guy asked me, Jage, would you consider, would you ever consider moving to the US? Right? Because he said, I sort of, I help with a local farmer in North Dakota to recruit uh, guys, especially farmers from South Africa, to go work for him. And, you know, the money isn't bad. Would you ever consider, you know, moving to North Dakota in the U.S. to go work for this farmer? And as I said, I was in Dynastration, and I almost saw it as a sign of the universe. And I said, let's see what happens. You know, I said, can you connect me with this farmer? Next day, the farmer calls me. Him and I had a brilliant conversation. I think we ended up talking for like an hour and a half. And he took interest in, in you know, he took a liking in me because I have a master's degree in organizational leadership. And he really clung to that. He said, you're the sort of guy that I need here. He was telling me, you know, I have a lot of struggles with the, the South African guys working for me. And I need a middleman. I need like a manager. And I think you're the ideal guy. Can you come over and just sort of be... This my spokesman, can you be the middleman between me as the farmer and the group of guys working for me? And I said, you know, it sounds good. But I remember asking him specifically, because Robbie, you can imagine at this time how fed up I was for the animal agricultural industry. I said, just tell me, do you have any livestock on the farm? Asking him, do you farm with animals? Because he was talking me, you know, through, you know, the weeds and the barley and, you know, everything they do in the farm. But he didn't mention anything about animals. So I asked the question and he said, not unless you count the dog. And him and I sort of laughed about it. Okay, fine. I felt, you know, easy about the whole thing. No animals on the farm is, is, um, it could be a good fit. So what I did, everything happened so quickly. As I said, the borders, the, most countries' borders were still closed at the time, but the U.S. allowed certain individuals to come help or work on the farms that's sort of part of the of the larger you know, cycle of food, right? So the producing of food, so allowed certain individuals to come in. Um, the aeroplane was basically completely empty. I think we were like 10 people on the aeroplane flying to the U.S. And um, anyway, I was obviously one of them. Moved to North Dakota. I'm not going to go work for this guy as a manager. And uh, as we drove into his farm, there was this massive feedlot of all things where they farmed with Let's, I think it was around about two and a half thousand dairy cows. And I thought in that moment, I thought, surely this belongs to one of the neighbors because I specifically asked this guy, if, you know, if there are any animals on the farm. And it ended up being his feedlot and the core component to his farm that all the other things, the, the weeds and the, the food that he, they produce on the farm was to feed the animals in the feedlot. And I had no idea. That's why I, I very often say that tricked is a harsh word, but I have found myself using it. I was almost tricked into, into the industry because there I was now completely financially ruined and, uh, just sort of going through a lot of, you know, just going through the motions and a lot of emotions. And fortunately, for the first couple of weeks, I was working in a different section of the farm. Of the farm. And um, I kept an eye on this feedlot because it was bothering me so much, man. And I always say, if hell does exist, it's you can find it at your local feedlot. It is 
brutal beyond words. And one of the things that I noticed is that throughout the feedlot, there were deceased cows lying about, right? Everywhere you look, you could just see deceased cows and they were being trampled into the dirt by their own friends and family, right? The other cows were trampling them to semi-mints and some of their skulls were crushed and they had severed limbs and it just broke me apart, man. So what happened was on my first Sunday that I had off, I was given the Sunday afternoon off, I went to the farm and said, listen, you don't have to pay me. I'll do it free of charge. But will you at least allow me to take a skid steer and take these dead cows from the pens? Because this is breaking my heart, man. I can't live with this. Can I at least give them a proper burial? There was another guy who ran the, the feedlot. And I remember at one point I asked him leading up to that day, I said, when are you going to take these dead cows out of the pens? And I remember him telling you, he swore at me, but he basically said, never. I'm never going to take them out. And he said, you know, the other cows can trample them to mince for Allah came. So that Sunday afternoon, the farmer said... Well, what happened to can... farmers loving their animals? Well, you know, it's, this is this when I hear man. this type of stuff, it's sort of like, you know, there's it's almost this sort of two-faced, two-sided, duplicitous, as one might say, aspects of farming. You often hear farmers on the radio and on the TV going, oh, I love my animals and this is my life and my father did it, my father's father did it. And nothing, you know, to say that all farmers are behave in the way that the farmer you spoke to behaves. But I hear this a lot. I hear a lot of people talking about their animals as if they are mere objects like an apple or a banana. These are beings that not even beings. They're just sort of things. And that's the, that's the most brutal thing about what you're describing is that these creatures are being farmed, grown like objects, and the respect for their sentience is non-existent. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. What, what do you think makes you di- made you different or makes you different from everyone else around you and the culture you grew up in? You know, was there a spiritual aspect to your childhood? Was there something in you that you was there a parent or a grandparent or somebody who planted the seed of compassion or, or watered the seed of compassion with you? Because I do believe all human beings, unless you're a psychopath and you're not clearly, who have no empathy, most human beings, I would say, 99% of us perhaps have the seed of compassion within us but if it's not watered i believe it won't flourish so was there someone or something in your life that allowed you or even gave you the permission to feel like this or think like this where do you think it came from yeah it's it's a tough question and i don't really know the answer to it because i grew up in a meat loving society playing i would say you know south african men they play rugby they're tough guys and they eat meat that's the sort of what we did growing up right and they hunted, you know, it's like, it's, it's this very toxic masculinity almost, right? And I don't know where it shifted for me. I think if I can attribute to anything is that I grew up quite tough in tough circumstances. And I don't want to elaborate too much on that, but I mean, I, I went through severe trauma as a child and that could potentially have you know, opened my heart, you know, to the idea of showing compassion to other suffering individuals. However, I think, you know, it took me all of 30 years to, to make that connection. You know, up to that point, I was just another meat gobbling South African man, as tough as they come, I guess, you know. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I think the bigger question is, is that I don't understand why other individuals can't, can't make that connection. It's what you said, though. There's a quote from Patty Smith, and she uh, is a writer, and, and she said, she died in 2015, but she said, those who have suffered and understand suffering 
and thereby extend their hand. And I think that's the, the key for me. And it's a, it is a, it's a recurring theme and pattern that I have in people I've spoken to over the last like eight, nine years on this podcast is when we as people, as sentient conscious beings, experience great suffering ourselves and we experience hardship, we see it in others. You know, as the, the quote from Tolstoy as well about when you see others suffering, don't retreat, but go closer and, and be present. I don't know the, the quote word for word, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, when we experience the suffering of others, we feel something and that is what makes us human. That for me is, you could say the jewel in the crown of our humanity. That is what makes us the beautiful beings that we are. We're obviously also on the other side, destructive and violent and uh, prone to tribalism and oppression, but we also have a beautiful nature too, which it needs to be drawn out. It does need to be drawn out. It can be drawn out spontaneously through experiencing suffering, but it can also be nourished and nurtured in our children as well. We can teach our children compassion. It can be fostered, but it is innate within all human beings. Uh, I believe that. I believe that is why we have potential to change. There's 8 billion of us in the world and actually convincing 8 billion people to change their behavior after 200,000 years of consumption of animals is very difficult. It's definitely not an easy task. But in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of the life of the universe, which is billions of years old, 200,000 years is just a blink. We as human beings have a, an opportunity. We're at a crossroads, really. I mean, we'll talk about the, the, the climate in a bit, but I think our species is at a crossroads. It's crunch time for us as a, as a creature on this planet living in the Anthropocene. It's a time of the human we have carved a hole in the in the in the heart of Earth in Gaia, and we have ripped out our heart, and we're eating it. That is ultimately where we are right now. It sounds dramatic, but we are of the Earth. Human beings are of the Earth. Human person of the Earth. We are made from it. Everything that we eat, you know, I say to people, we are what we eat, and it goes over people's heads. But when we consume flesh or plants or anything for that matter it, it makes the body that we inhabit and when we consume the flesh of suffer suffered beings suffering beings many people believe there's not necessarily scientific evidence behind this but a lot of people believe that when we consume the bodies of suffering beings and animals we are in a way incorporating those elements into our life and from a buddhist perspective it's it's karmic you know, every action that we take is creating a ripple of karma throughout our lives personally, but also our entire culture and our entire civilization. So every single human being that makes the decision to no longer cause suffering intentionally is creating positive karmic ripples. So, you know, your isolated shift in your mindset in what seems like a sea of suffering is like a light in a candle in the, in the, in a vast darkness. The beautiful nature of, of what you have and what we have as people is that we can pass it on. We can pass on that light, you know, like but the Buddha said, the light of one candle can light the, the candles of thousands and millions of people. And it never can be extinguished because it can go on and on and on. And that, to me, is the core of the belief system that is and the philosophy that is veganism, which is if we don't need to cause suffering, why should we continue? But you know, what I love about what you're doing is it's more than just not eating animals, because just being vegan isn't enough. We need to get active and we need to take action. And that's what you're doing in your books and the work that you're doing in your, in your talks. You know, this is why I wanted to speak to you, because I can see what kind of passion and fervor you have for this movement, because it's not easy. It's not easy doing this work. It's this constant criticism, the constant infighting and attacking and the animal ag industries, you know, accusing us of being zealots, green zealots or extremists, or that we are insane for, for wanting to protect 
life, which is it's 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 a form of madness in a way. How can we be seen as extremists when we are the people trying to protect these beautiful, gentle, childlike beings, the baby lambs that you spoke about? These are childlike beings. They are innocent, gentle. They don't understand what's going on. I wrote the following poem whilst working in the dairy industry in America with a small little pencil on the back of a cardboard box, sitting in the heart of a feedlot in the dirt and the snow relating to the suffering cows around me. It's called winter and it goes like this. How to say I'm sorry for all the trouble caused. Seeing your pain for what it is, I shuddered, quivered, paused. I bend down to the dirt, humble to your faults, open my soul to you and stare back into yours. Brethren of the same earth, we are not so different after all, only I am man, free I am, having been oblivious to your call. Clear the winter from my name and free me from my ways, so you and I can reconcile, fused for all our days. The way animals perceive time different to human is very different to human beings, and, and the suffering that they experience is like an eternity, because their individuality and the way they see the world is in the now they experience the ever the moment the, the now moment that the the present as an un, as a sort of never-ending unfolding moment they don't really exist in the past or the future like we do as human beings we're always thinking about the future always worrying about the past the animals just live and when they experience the suffering that you talk about it is the most horrific experience for them because it, it, it never seems to end because they don't know when it's going to end and that's why your work is so important and we need as people to to, to keep on at it. But I, I want to know about your experience in the dairy industry, because for me and the work that I do and, the, and all the things that I experience, it is the most horrific thing, the brutalities that go on towards these female mothers. And I have a t-shirt that I, I, I sell on our merch website and says, mothers, not milk machines, because I want people to think that the milk that they are consuming is breast milk from a mother. It's not a machine that made that milk. It's a mother. So after my little rant there, <laughs> tell me about the dairy industry and you know your experience of it. So what happened was when I, I finally I took out the seeds cows from the pens and the farmer said it's fine, but you can't bury them. You have to almost stack them in a in a gigantic heap, right? And I didn't understand it at the time, but still, you know, I followed instructions and I rested them there and in this Imagine an enormous hill because there were more than 30 deceased cows. And as I was taking them out, I was just crying. And as I said, you know, they had severed limbs and they, many of their eyes were still open. It was just, it was just horrific beyond words, right? So when I was finally done, I was walking home, still crying. And my phone rang and it was the farmer saying, listen, Jace, I forgot to tell you, you got to go back to these deceased cows and you got to go take photos of their ear tags because they all had tags in their ears so you know which had certain numbers on it so that he could now know which cows i took out of the pens right and i said how am i supposed to do it they are stacked on top of one another and he just said basically make a plan so picture me going back to this hill this mountain of deceased cows you know these carcasses lying there it's brutal it's absolutely brutal and i'm climbing on top of them clawing through them and it's like i'm, I'm talking about rotten meat and it, the stench it is 
you know, it still keeps me awake some nights, right? And I'm searching for these ear tags and I'm crying and everything is stinking. And I'm thinking, why, why are we doing this to these poor animals? But that action of taking the cows out of the feedlot that day, that again changed everything for me because what had happened after that is the farmer so this is a very good deed, right? And he came to me and said, you know, JH, I've had many guys come through my farm and no one has ever done that. And I like this. And he sort of almost turned it into like a religious thing, right? And he said, you know, you're a godsend. I was praying for someone like you to come along. And so he said, what I'm going to do is, he's, he was telling me, the guy who was running his feedlot had been doing it for 15 odd years, right? And he somehow, this farmer, found out via the grapevine that this guy, this Ukrainian guy was running his feedlot, was on the, on the verge of leaving his services for good, right? So he said, I'm going to catch him, JH, before he catches me. I'm going to kick him out and I'm going to bring you in. You're the new guy. You're the godsend. You are now going to run my feedlot. And I just said, no, please. I just remember saying, please, anything but this. You don't understand. I am like a vegan. I don't, I haven't eaten meat or dairy for several years now. I'm, you know, my heart is for animal liberation. I can't do this job. And he said, I'll never forget. He said, well, basically said my way or the highway because he pointed to the gravel road that was leading out of his farm. He said, you see that, that road. He said, that road is leading to this tar road and that, you know, will lead you to town and, you know, basically was just saying, what do you want to do? If you want to leave, go. Just start walking, you know. And we were like three hours from the nearest city, right? And we were, as I said, we had no money on our name, right? We we were completely broke at the time. And here's this guy saying, listen, if you're not going to follow instructions, there you go, leave. I mean, I didn't even have a ticket home. No way of, of getting to the city. Like, no money on my name, no ticket home. And I went home that evening you know, living on the farm um, still, you know, in, in the States. And uh, my wife was just begging me to come home. She said, Jayesh, just follow your heart. Man. You'll see everything will align for you. Don't listen to this farmer. Don't take this job. This is not who you are. Just come home. But I didn't listen, man. I, you know, fear does that to you. So what what I did the next morning, I went back and I submitted, you know. I said, fine, okay, I'll do it. I'll run the feedlot, and I end up doing so for the better part of 100 days. And it doesn't sound long, Robbie, but trust me, it is a long time. If your heart is for animal liberation, to work in that feedlot as the main guy, and yes, the biggest strategy of it all is that part of the job was artificially inseminating the dairy cows, right? So up to 60 cows per day. And I had no experience with this. I was given one day's training and said, there you go. Now you got to do it. It broke me. As I said, I was already, you know, my mental health was already ruined. And here I'm working in this feedlot, seeing these atrocities, having to breed, you know, artificial inseminate these cows. It completely just ruined my life, right? And I, But I just I feel it's necessary to say, because this really is my reality, that I wasn't a victim. Perhaps in a way, but, you know, the real victims, of course, are the cows. The cows that live there 
and still live there and across the world, you know, they are the real victims. And I always keep them in mind just to say that, you know, it was tough on my mental health, but I wasn't the victim. You know, the real victims were the poor, innocent beings living in those atrocious circumstances. Of course, I did my best to make life better for them because up to that point, I often saw, you know, individuals beating the cows with rods and shouting at them. And I once saw uh, one of the guys throw a massive rock at a cow, striking her right on the eye socket, and she was bleeding, and this guy was just laughing. So I, I would have none of that, right? I just said, fine, I'll do the AI process, but, you know, nobody's going to, you know, abuse these cows. Otherwise, you know, no more hitting, no more spitting, swearing, none of it. I would go in early in the mornings, like a half an hour before the day's work would start. And I would just go sort of hang out with the cows. And they are such gentle creatures. And we would often play with a, with a soccer, with a football, of all things. And if you've ever seen happiness, man, it's a bunch of cows chasing one another and, you know, playing with a ball. And, uh, and that sort of kept me going but it was it was it was brutal it was brutal on them it was brutal on me my mental health was deteriorating to the point where i no longer wanted to live i couldn't stand you know the atrocities anymore so one evening i had no will to continue living um and we were living uh, my wife was back home but me and the other guys working on the farm we were living in this completely dilapidated house at the edge of this small tiny forest right and at that time it, had be it was the north dakota and winter so it was snow everywhere right and that evening was immensely cold but i just i just wanted to get out and i wandered into the woods into the forest and I was so depressed and I went and I sat by this tiny little creek and I sat there with an old rustic blade and I, I, I started cutting away at my wrist and I was just telling myself, this is it for me, man. This is the end of my journey. I can't stand it anymore. Things haven't worked out for us. I can't, I can't stand the abuse of these animals anymore. I've got no will left to live and i'm just going to end it right here and as i was beginning to cut away at my wrist i looked up and this enormous i mean gigantic elk came walking straight at me from the opposite side of the creek he was sort of coming down the hill down the slope towards the creek right from the opposing side and i sat there thinking why is he approaching me because Surely he must be able to see me. I'm sitting right here. He's only like seven meters away at this point. And if he can't see me, surely he must be able to smell me. But still, he's coming straight at me towards the creek. And I'm backing away slowly. And at second glance, I saw that this elk had been shot in the face of all things. So it was elk hunting season. And he had been shot and wounded in the face of all things. And that his entire lower jaw was like dangling in the wind and blood everywhere. It was dark, but I could see the blood. I could see the jaw dangling. And I was just sitting there weeping once more, thinking, how can we as a species do this, you know, to these innocent creatures? So this elk... Despite my presence, he was so desperate for water that he was willing to risk, you know, coming straight at me. And he had these massive antlers and he just, you know, he sort of kept his eyes on me and he stuck his head to the water, trying to drink water, which was surely his final moments. There was no way it would survive that wound. And finally, it wandered off 
into the dark of night, and I followed it, which was quite easy to do because it was bleeding profusely, red blood on white snow, and I had my small little torch on my camera, uh, on my on my phone, and I, and I followed his track, and it was just blood everywhere, and I just followed him for several hours right through the woods that evening. Whilst doing that, I just found the agency within myself to continue living, to change my story. Just saying, J.H., this doesn't have to be the end, man. It's like, this can be the end of a couple of horrific chapters in your life, but it's not the end of the book. You can turn it around for good. You can shine a light on the atrocities that you witness. You can help other people. You can help the animals. Come on, Jaysman, you can turn your life around. And I'm following this, you know, this trail of blood and I'm weeping. I'm just sort of in that moment. I'm just dedicating my life to the animal liberation cause. And I never went back to work. I never returned to work the next morning. I resigned early the next morning came home two days later, back home to South Africa, with no idea how we're going to pay the bills, right? It was, just, it was just a mystery to us, but my wife was so excited. She said, Jay, you see, man, it's going to work out. Everything's going to align in your life. She just, you now, for the first time, you're following your heart, and um, came home. That was in 2021 and for the first time we could now call ourselves vegan although we had we hadn't eaten meat or dairy for several years but we were no longer being paid from the meat or the dairy industries and we could now live bold happy vegan lives and give back you know to the vegan community and and hopefully you know to the animals and just make a change in our lives and that's little over two years and and what a beautiful journey it's been. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Very, very moving and certainly a testament to what I said earlier about experiencing great suffering. When we see it, we feel it. Um, it kind of drives us and compels us to take action uh, for animals, which are, as many forget, are our cousins. We are human beings, but we are also part of the tree of life on this beautiful world where we share the DNA and the, and the lineage and the history with every single other sentient being, um, including the plants, of course, and the fungi and the mushrooms and everything else. You know, all life is connected on planet Earth. It is a, a web, an intricate web. And I truly believe that our purpose as human beings was meant to be custodians. You know, I'm, I'm not Christian, but, uh, you know, the, the Christians talk of dominion. Um, and dominion do did not mean and does not mean uh, ownership or oppressive uh, control. It means protection. It means to, to take charge and, and be the custodians or the gardeners of this beautiful garden planet, which it is. It's a green planet. It's a blue dot, some call it, but the ocean, our beautiful oceans. But it, that life does hang in the balance in, in our world because of animal agriculture, because of uh, speciesism, because of carnism. These ideologies, these belief systems, which remain invisible for many people, many people don't realize that they are in a, a carnistic food system. They grow up believing that they have to eat animals, that it's a, a normal part of life, and that the suffering of animals is irrelevant, and that we as people must continue to consume animals because it is essential for our survival. But as I said, that is a lie. It is a lie sold to us for various reasons. You know, it's a long and dark checkered history, uh, humans' consumption of animals. A lot can be said about it from, a, from an environmental perspective, from a spiritual perspective. There are people in the world who still rely on the consumption of animals out of necessity. And, you know, we're not, we're, we shouldn't judge. I, I think that we who 
you live in the Western world or a world where there is a lot of privilege, but also access to plant foods where there is options, I think that we should take those options and there shouldn't be excuses. But I think that we need to lead by example, uh, as you are doing, um, and as I believe I try to do, is to show people how this is possible and it's delicious and it's amazing and it's fun and that we don't have to miss out or lose out. So I woke up early this morning in a cold sweat, literally shaking, because I had dreamt that I was back in the US working at this feedlot where I did a couple of years ago, experiencing once more just the worst of all trauma, right? The blood and the gore and the suffering of these sentient cows at the hands of dairy industry. And this just broke my heart, right? I was so taken aback by this dream, literally crying as I woke up that I could sleep no more. So I got up, made myself a nice cup of coffee and just went outside and sat contemplating underneath the stars on my own vegan journey, where I'd come from and where I was heading. And I just realized once more the beauty that is veganism, the honor that it is to be living this vegan lifestyle. Sometimes we make the mistake of seeing veganism as a burden of some kind but it really isn't my friends it's an honor we get to live this vegan lifestyle to be mouthpieces for those who can't speak for themselves so till next time from Milan and i be blessed and be a vegan obviously beyond your experiences you also talk about being a coach and a, and a life coach talk us through a bit about how that works and what do you what's what's your day-to-day like like what kind of things are you involved in and how do you guide and support others to to make a shift to a more compassionate life so what happened was when i moved back home as i said i had no idea what i was now going to do with my life i knew i wanted to give back to the vegan movement and i knew that i needed to write a book which i did it's called ex Farmer goes vegan i wanted to make the title as self-explanatory as possible so i moved back home, started writing the book. Uh, it was a tough ride, so I needed to take a couple of breaks. Um, you know, I would write for two days and it would become too severe for me, you know, reliving all the trauma. And that sort of led me to doing children's literature in the vegan space where I wanted to continue writing in the vegan space, but shine a happier, a brighter light, you know, a more easygoing light on the vegan movement. So I was doing that for a while, knowing that I wanted to give something back and then a friend of mine was going through a very difficult time struggling with mental health. I, many years before, I'd completed a master's degree having majored in life coaching. And he said, J.H., would you consider helping me from a life coaching perspective? So I said, okay, I'll help you for free, no charge. I'll, I'll help you. And that's how the journey began. So I helped him and I saw that it almost comes naturally to me. Also having gone through severe trauma myself as a kid and also, you know, through the meat and dairy industries and having survived literally at the point of wanting to commit suicide. So I helped in inverted commas him to the best of my ability. And then another individual asked me through his testimony. And then I thought, okay, what I'll do is this is clearly, you know, almost a sign from the universe. I need to do this. So I started a small little life coaching practice in my hometown and that really took off quite quickly it was at the height of COVID and many people were almost seeking guidance and and looking for help and it was just you know the right place at the right time so that's how my life coaching practice then started and then what happened was about a year ago uh, so i was working with on my vegan book and i was producing a couple of vegan children's books and always had an idea of i wanted 
work in the vegan space full time, but I had no idea what, you know, how that's going to look. So about a year ago, I was contacted, a lady contacted me from the UK and she said that, you know, she heard, you know, by the grapevine of my story and um, she said that her child is going through a very tough time at school, that he is being bullied for his veganism, his vegan views. Crazy and tragic as it is that this this kid was bullied to the point where he no longer wanted to live. He was telling his parents that he just wants to die. Can you believe it? It's It just broke my heart. So I said, listen, let's walk this journey together. So him and I started sharing life. And that's where something shifted in my heart. And I said, listen, I got to move this life coaching to the vegan space. That's where I will do the most good from my perspective, having walked the journey that I've walked. So walked a journey with him. And then earlier this year, my wife and I just said, listen, we're going to go all in. And it's been immensely scary, but we just went all in. And uh, so I'm serving the vegan community, right, from a life coaching perspective. As you almost said earlier, and I'm paraphrasing, to help individuals, because the answers do lie within ourselves, but to shine our brightest light and to find light and life within this non-vegan world, because it can be a harsh reality. Eh? So that's what I've been doing this year, and at the same time, we released, I finally finished my book, Ex Pharma Goes Vegan. As Steve Jobs said once that you can't connect the dots of your life looking forward. It's only when you look back. So looking back now, the one thing led to the next. And uh, like the children's literature, that sort of opened up a couple of doors for us to do some nice collaborations with some individuals in the vegan space. So there's a lot going on. A lot of that has to do with these collaborations, these colorful many of them in the children's market, and then doing a lot of coaching still from a life coaching perspective in the vegan space. It's amazing. And where can people get these books and your literature that you're producing? Our website is called Veganism Has Won, like it is, it is trying, veganismhaswon.com. And the reason we chose that name is because it all started that night with the elk Unfortunately, you know, it took him to pass away, you know, almost to save my life. But veganism and the course of veganism gave me a purpose to live. So it is one in my life, W-O-N. It is one in my life. Veganism has one.com is our website. That's where you can connect with me. People can connect with me regarding coaching. My book, Ex Farmer Goes Vegan, is available on our website free of charge. So if you want, if I can be bold enough to say so, a good read in the vegan space for no charge, you can get it from our website, veganismas1.com. We also have a, a couple of other things in the literature space on our website. Then we've got a, many collaborations that's in the final processes of being finished. So veganismas1.com is the best place to connect with us or on Instagram at veganismas1. And yeah, I would love to connect with you guys. Thank you for your very insightful, honest and 
vulnerable responses and comments uh, and sharing a bit of your story. There's obviously so much more to your story. Uh, we could probably speak for another two hours. Yeah, I'd love to do another episode with you at some point in the future, but it's nice to get a snippet of, of what you've experienced, the dark and the light, you know, it's the, the transformation that you have gone through is truly remarkable. And it does give us hope that, you know, people who may be trapped in the animal agricultural system can see the light, they can see that the brutal nature of the, these industries is wholly unnecessary, that we don't need to keep doing it. There are other ways there that we have proof of that. There is no longer a question that human beings can live in harmony with nature, that um, we can grow plants and uh, nourish ourselves for infinite generations, but we can't uh, continue to grow our population and feed and eat on animals, despite what the regenerative agricultural community will tell you. The, the facts are we have a finite planet with limited resources. And if we want to live and continue to thrive on this planet and, and our population increase past 9 billion, 10 billion, etc., we have to shift to a plant-based food system, or at least into food and alternative proteins that don't require the, the environmental resources that we currently consume. You know, the animal ethics aside, which is a huge concern and issue for our collective karma as a species, as a Buddhist, it, it, it's um, it's deeply disturbing, but also confronting as well. So thank you for your work. Before I let you go, <laughs> I always like to ask my guests this final question. If you were stuck on a desert island, and it was just you and a pig, if I could give you a book, a music artist, and a vegan dish, what would you take with you? Oh, wow. I am a massive fan of music. So how it's going to sustain me, I have no idea. But uh, let's say if I had some nice fruits on, on, on uh, the island and I could sustain myself through that way, I would love just to have some good music there. And my favorite band of all time, it's a local band from my native country of South Africa called Watershed. And I If you haven't listened to them you know guys please check them out it is some of the best music out there so if i can yeah if i can take a, a couple of watershed albums have it with me i think i will be a-okay vegan dish is my wife and i make homemade seitan right the traditional way where you wash out the starch it's a long process it takes at least an hour and a half for us on a sunday to do it is a buddhist technique <laughs> yeah by of buddhist all, monks yeah, so I love, I love it. I could have some nice Satan then. From a book perspective, I think my favorite book of all time is still Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. I think there are so many life lessons in there. I've read it at least 10 times in my life over the past 15 years. And every time I read it, I find a new gem in there. So um, I think I'll take, I'll take The Alchemist with me.
That's a beautiful story. I've read it myself. It is a is a wonderful world uh, Paulo Coelho created, and uh, as you say, so many lessons about the journey of life, and that there is there is a lot of signs and symbols and omens, uh, and that we must look for the omens. And the elk was definitely an omen <laughs> for you. I've had many omens, which I've talked about on this podcast many times. We need to we need to look out for the omens. They are there. Life as a way of showing us which way we should be going, no matter what situation we're in, no matter how hopeless it may seem, even though it's uh, it may seem dark. You know, there's always there's always a dawn coming uh, if we just hold on and keep going. And as I like to often say, do not surrender to despair. Despair is a is a dark bottomless cavern that we can e- easily fall into if we avoid surrendering to despair. Anything is possible. But thank you, JH, for joining us on the PBM podcast. What a pleasure to sit down with you, my friend, and hear a bit of your story. Thank you so much for having me. It was really an honor of a lifetime. Thank you so much, man. Have an awesome day. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Plant-Based News Podcast with me, Robbie Lockie. Our team also includes Phil Marriott, Daryl Savchuk, Polly Foreman, Triska Taylor. Hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, veganism, animals, and everything in between. <laughs>